Hello. Welcome to Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician and therapist in Los Angeles. Why Not Both is all about how our multiple passions inform our identity. And this season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine and produced by Laura Studeris. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and come spend time with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, and that is both on Instagram and on Twitter. For this episode, we got to virtually spend some time with Greg from Deerhoof. We talked about really everything from politics to music, and I very much enjoyed the very beginning of this episode, because he launched directly into a story starring the wonderful Justin Thoreau. I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, it's called Justin Thoreau, who um, is pretty famous, a, a famous Thoreau. actor. Yeah. Um, and, That's you know, also intro. a writer, a screenwriter. He wrote, uh, co-wrote Tropic Thunder and I think some animated movie. Maybe, mm-hmm. I forget which one, but... Um, he also directed one movie so far. Um, cool, cool. And, and it's called Dedication. And um, he was a big Deerhoof fan. And we happened to be in Los Angeles on tour right when he was doing the final sound mix for this movie. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of Deerhoof in the soundtrack. Hey. And so he invited, I ended up staying a few extra days in Los Angeles after the tour was over. <laughs> you know, just sleeping on his uh, on the couch in his hotel room to attend these mixing sessions. And uh, the 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 company that released the movie was Weinstein. And uh, oh dear. although Harvey himself was not present, there was an incredible. <laughs> he sent minions to the session on his behalf to pressure Justin and everybody to to make um, decisions more to his liking. Like he wanted a bunch of voiceovers in different sections of the movie to help explain it. Um, and everyone was against it. And one big thing that happened was um, the minion was, was you know, demanding that this voiceover be put in. We actually had spent time, an hour or two, creating a mix with the voiceover that intentionally sounded bad. So that when <laughs> so that when she arrived at the session, we could say, see, this doesn't work at all. And then she was like, well, I talked to Harvey and he said, you have to make it work. And then Justin went around to everybody in the room and said, well, do you think this voiceover works? And each person in turn was like, no, I think it's actually better without it. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the Pro Tools guy, the guy who was, who was actually constructing the entire mix um, from a technical point of view, you know, obviously a seasoned professional had been in the business for decades. I had lunch with him afterwards and he was like livid. And I'm like, what, isn't it good to be consulted and have your opinion, you know, matter? And he's like, no because I'm probably going to be blacklisted from Weinstein and company at this point, because I just went against their, you know, and there's all this, you know, there's this corporate adversarial thing that like a person like you or me never has to deal with. Um, 
thankfully, that I just when I when I understood the structure, you know, of how movies often get made, where each person, it's not everybody contributing creativity, um, or at least it isn't typically, it's um, everybody is each other's enemy, uh, negotiating for a better deal, and um, trying to, you know, pull one over on everybody else, and uh, get ahead, and, uh, you know, maybe for the betterment of the, <laughs> wow. the uh, filmed result, and maybe not, you know. <laughs> Wow. I'm like, I'm imagining this all go down and I'm imagining that sound mixer just being like, there goes my job. There goes <laughs> <Yeah>. my <life." laughs> exactly. But the catering was good. <laughs> like you said. Oh my God. That's, it's so funny. I guess like growing up in LA, I hear these stories. I'm like, no, this seems, this seems accurate. Right. <laughs> I was shocked. I mean, I was naive. It didn't make sense to me. I, I just figured it was all like everybody in it together, everybody pitching in ideas. That's what he invited me to come do. Right. And, uh, you know, it was great. Um, and I loved the experience so much. But uh, and I loved how the movie turned out. And I just thought it was such a beautiful, you know, movie. And just to be kind of on the inside of the process was, was like, <laughs> I don't know, it's like magic for me. But well, then something. <laughs> You're like, it's magic and it's horrifying. And I was like, welcome to Why Not Both, where we have both here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, that's literally, it's so funny that you say that because that's very much like, I feel like the artistic process here. And I mean, like when you were talking mm -hmm. about Thoreau, I was thinking of even like, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which like in a lot of ways, exactly. like an absurd. That's how I knew, that's how I knew who he was. Is when he first kind of contacted us that movie was then new and we were all insane fans and you know I'd seen it in the theater a bunch of times and I was going mm -hmm. nuts I mean this movie was so cool and <laughs> I was really into his character <laughs> and oh my then God, he I love his character in that movie so much yeah exactly it's weird that we bring this up I was just last night watching a something on YouTube that was a Mulholland Drive behind the scenes um you know somebody with a video camera like taking taking video of them making it you know uh, of them making it and you know I was like sitting there watching Justin do like take three take four you know <laughs> was, I was like oh man I miss Justin I wonder how he's doing but he just reached out to us and he was like um I'm a big fan I want to do an interview of Deerhoof for interview magazine and oh, that was good. maybe in 2003 or 2004 or something like that and uh <laughs> and uh i mean it was so so fun to meet him it was like a it was like a real uh, starstruck moment you know that's so funny <laughs> i'm like i was just thinking last night about rewatching cuz i was thinking i'm like oh you know now halloween is coming up we all have to be right <laughs> um i'm like what do i want to do to celebrate and i was just like ooh well i could plan like rituals to honor the dead and also watch my favorite david lynch films right on <laughs> you better plan the whole day i mean some of those are kind of long right inland empire is that like oh three hours God. long <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember watching that film in between that and like the third season of twin peak sometimes i'm right. just like are you punking us but like in a great way but i'm still watching but like but i have questions yeah. 
<laughs> I have questions, right? The whole thing, it's like, it feels like a quiz. Like you have questions for him when you watch it and he has questions for you by making it, you know? Yes. <laughs> it's like a, it's a, it's a kind of test, you know? And um, my girlfriend, Sarah, was just telling me a couple days ago, like, you know, like, <laughs> sometimes, Greg, your your music feels a little bit like a quiz, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I was like, wow, is that really true? And I thought about it. It's like, yeah, it is kind of true. Like, like uh, I do feel like we test the, the audience a little bit or the listener a little bit or or, or there's there's something funny about the um, I mean, Mulholland Drive starts this way too. Uh, a very confusing start. Yeah. So you're sort of dropped in, and you're like, well, "Wait, wait. <laughs> like, where was the setting? Where, where was like the, you know, comforting? Like, let me understand, you know, who the characters are, where they. But no, it just starts with this weird jitterbug thing. You know, this bizarre, you know. Um, dancing, but really abstract, where you can't see the room, mm -hmm. and then suddenly to these uh, this older couple that you have no idea what role they play. You know, everything about the first maybe five minutes is just such a jolt, and it all seems un all the threads seem unrelated, yep. and you're trying to hold it all in your mind. Like, well, what does this car crash have to do with that jitterbug thing in the beginning? And, yep. you know, over the course of the movie, it starts to, <laughs> you know, if you're really engaged, then it starts to make sense. And especially like you or me, you know, if you watch it several times, then it's like it even more starts to make sense. It really rewards that kind of like repetition. But yeah, the first time you, you know, sit down and like try this thing out, you're like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember there was, it was like a pivotal moment when I was in college where I remember there was a theater that um, was in Tacoma and yeah. they played independent movies. Um, and I remember that um, they did play Waking Life, but before that they played Bjork's Pagan Poetry video. Oh, I don't um, know that. <laughs> oh my God. Like that that video still is like one of my favorite things ever filmed and after yeah. it i was like well waking life that could have been better but then they played mulhall and drive <laughs> double feature whoa it was Triple like they feature. had like they had like a movie festival and so we were going like day after day and i remember out of all of that like i loved oh, I new york and i loved the david lynch and a bunch of my friends like loved waking life and i was like i don't right. think we're gonna be friends after college <laughs> 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 Well, that I mean, the number of times that people have told me that that either friendships or romantic relationships started because of Deerhoof or at a Deerhoof show, or that they broke up because of a disagreement over Deerhoof, has really, you know, I mean, it's a makes you wonder, you know, what in the world you're doing, you know. Like, I thought I was just sitting there, you know, playing some guitar chords or like, you know, hitting a drum beat or whatever, but it's like. <laughs> it's it's wild to think that uh that you know the arts can become part of real life and they can sort of like <laughs> um they are like a test you test yourself against them mm -hmm. and you 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 figure out what your principles are you know as a human being and you you and it, the kind of the you you figure out whether the the myths of the work resonate with you you know and you 
you, <laughs> even if it's not always conscious, there's a sense that uh, that an artistic work could could um, <laughs> save you from yeah. some kind of uh, a, a disaster or a challenge or it could embolden you or it could inspire you or give you strength when you're feeling kind of, you know, beat down or something. And uh, I don't know, I guess over the years um, that I've had my band, I've <laughs> like only felt more and more that that was true. Mm. And part of it is just the, the state of, of humanity and the world itself you know, feels um, um, like it's beating you down <laughs> extra. <laughs> and I so, think, you yeah, know. 2020 has been a little extra on that front. <laughs> yeah, I know, but is 2020 going to be any less extra? It's going to be more extra. You think, you, I, I think 2020 was the least fires hurricanes, you know, and tornadoes that the earth is going to see in the next century, you know, it's going to be uh, maybe the least amount of protests we're going to see, you know, um, and, and uh, I don't want to put them all in the same box and say they all equal bad. I mean, the protests I oh. consider good, but, but they're what, what is being demonstrated about is, you know, if it's police brutality, or if it's, abolition of police or abolition of prisons or if it's about you know other issues that are clearly going to come up you know how about in the middle of a pandemic you know we don't have uh we don't have medicare for all you know that yeah. that will be a thing probably that since neither <laughs> neither of our options uh support it and have vocally dismissed it as silly then um, I mean, unless they're receiving it, of course, you know. If, oh, yeah. I, say, <laughs> I mean, you know, if, they're, if receiving, they're receiving socialized yeah. medicine, you know, then Trump fine. is fine yeah. with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't oh, hear him yeah. complain about his uh, his treatment at a fully government funded hospital when he had COVID. But but for everyone else, he thinks it's ridiculous. So, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it's just going to keep cranking up. Obviously, global global warming isn't um, even if we were to stop extracting fossil fuels five minutes from now, completely across the globe, global warming would not itself start to reverse for I don't know, I hear estimates again, you know, like maybe something like 50 to 100 years is when it would reach its peak, you know, there's a delay. Right. Uh, right. Um, the well, global warming that we experience today, you know, October 23rd, is the result of 40, 50 years ago inaction. Right. You know? right. right. And I think that in a way, like, I don't know if you're into tarot at all, says the girl from play. <laughs> um, but it reminds me. I know that fall album, um, Palace of Swords Reverse. <laughs> Oh my God. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, the tower card, which like whenever yeah. you pull that in a reading, people are like, ah, well, shit. Um, but it's kind of, the <laughs> it's the card of like, everything has to like fall down in a way so that then you can like rebuild or that something else can mm. take place. And so yeah. it's like, watching kind of like the beginning of like 
the the tumble down where like it's it's kind of horrific to watch something like fall down and crumble <laughs> but you're also like oh after that comes like a renaissance like after that it's like cyclical where after that has to yeah. come over earth it's just that right now we're in the really like we're at the beginning of the messy bit i mean yeah and and it's really um it doesn't sort of happen all at one tempo because you know it has felt like the american empire has been crumbling for you know almost as long as i can remember um but especially you know since war on terror i think it became right. really obvious right. like okay if we're having to prop up if we're having to basically hold every human on this earth at gunpoint in order to get our way Right. Um, in order for our economic interests to uh, <laughs> to stay where where um, Americans expect them to be, then uh, then clearly, you know, we're, we're, we show all the signs of, of a decaying empire. Right. Like if you look at empires of the past, <laughs> you know, the Dutch um, East India Company, or if you look at the Roman Empire, or, mm -hmm. um, the British Empire, um, <laughs> the end was always signaled by <laughs> um, uh, most of the taxes going to the military, mm -hmm. which is our situation now, and it's only growing. It's only grown under all the all the recent administrations. It was more under Bush, more under more than that under Obama, more than that under Trump, um, <laughs> to where it's like something like sixty percent of our taxes just go to weapons, um, and um, and then also when the when it gets like too, like they call it over financialized. So like, instead of that, the empire like making cool things, right, or creating technology or, or <laughs> I mean, in the US case, it had a lot to do with creating armaments in World War Two, it had to do with creating cars, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then it had to do um, for a while with high tech um, stuff. But at, at this point, our economy is mostly based on finance, you know, private equity and whatever, Wall Street, basically, speculation. And the whole thing with uh, the crash in 2008, it was like, yeah, our economy is a bubble now based on finance. And that's always been the sign that an empire was about to pop you know, yeah. in the past. <laughs> <laughs> As a classics major, this is resonating very much with me. Oh, yeah, classics. Wait, okay. Oh, well, then I have to ask, Pam. Greek or uh, Greek or uh, what do you call it? Um, I focus on uh, Hellenistic studies. <laughs> okay, so you're Greek. Okay, so how's your Greek? I know how to say Epharisto, but that's not really ancient Greek. Well, that's very useful, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my my ancient Greek is rusty, admittedly, because I haven't done <laughs> translations in a while. Um, yeah, but you don't just have conversations. Do you ever do the podcast in ancient Greek? <laughs> I did. I did once um, curse it the one in ancient Greek um, at the library of Ephesus because they kept repeatedly invading my personal space. <laughs> what now? Now, this is the story I need to hear. I've been talking too much. Let's hear your story. 
I'm like, that's why you're on the podcast now. <laughs> it was quite funny. I'll, I'm like, how do I make it brief? Basically, I'm very small and very pale. And I was at the Library of Ephesus. And um, I've noticed sometimes when I travel that being small and pale, people will notice that. Um, hmm. And I was in, obviously it's, it's in Turkey. And so yeah. Turkish men kept approaching me and saying like, so white, so white, because like there it's a value to be very pale because right. of the horrors of colonialism. Um, right. And so- and that was always such a cosmopolitan, I mean, Istanbul at least, such yeah. a cosmopolitan city down through yeah. the centuries, you know. And so there's, there's a whole thing about like being, having yeah. white skin there. And so like, I was just trying to live my life and <laughs> this, <laughs> this guy kept approaching me and I kept saying, no, no, thank you. No, Whoa. no, thank you. And he kept trying to touch my arms. And Whoa. I finally, <laughs> I said to him, Valles Caracas which means uh, have your corpse be eaten by crows. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it literally means you Pulled didn't that get... that one out of a bag, yeah. Yeah, my sister was with me because this guy like looked at me slightly <laughs> horrified. And the thing is, I said it in almost a mix of like what would be modern and ancient Greek because Whoa. in ancient Greek, it would be ballet. It wouldn't be ballet because like that beat. Well, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's I mean, of, I'm sure all your listeners know that already. Oh, yeah, totally. No need to go over Totally. It's, it's much Grammatical like, finer points. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're going back to the, you know, phonetic <laughs> alphabet that then also informed Hebrew, it's the same as like bet and vet, where it's like, that's like a, yeah. Wow. Things got real nerdy real fast. Um, but, <laughs> 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 Wait, so were you understood? Um, I think I was understood enough that he yeah. lightly haunted and w went away. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know if he was just, it would be like if someone cursed at you with like something from like the Canterbury Tales, you'd be kind yeah, of like, oh, right. <laughs> oh, Some of the best curses I've ever seen were, um, Martin Luther quotes. Now that's not quite Canterbury Tales era, but, uh, you know, the, uh, Martin Luther, uh, yes. um, just uh just his writings were filled with insults my brother and i for a while we we had this idea that we really wanted to uh <laughs> we wanted to create an app um it never got past the um the knee slapper stage but uh create an app called comeback <laughs> and all it was was you know if somebody says something mean to you you could just click a button on your phone and instantly you would have have some insult um ready to go you know that you could oh say back to them God. and then we started getting into the research of it and it seemed like martin luther was some, some of the top insults in history um you know came out from his pen are there any off the top of your head that you remember None. that were like no because they, that, that's the thing it wouldn't really work for an app i think this is what discouraged us because they were all like a paragraph long you know <laughs> like really detailed like, it was kind of like the one you said to the guy but but like you know times five. Oh my god it's always i have a delay reaction usually where then like hours later i'm like oh my god <laughs> well everybody has that <laughs> Yeah, but if you're minimal, if you're minimal, then a little goes a long way. So That's you're true. you're doing yourself a favor in that sense. The other thing I watched last night was uh, <laughs> um, was Leonard Nimoy talking about um, playing Spock and how he realized, you know, maybe really early on um, in the series how 
you know, if he was, if he basically played nothing, um, then even just raising an eyebrow would be like this, you know, seismic event like on the screen. Or, <laughs> yeah, which I thought was so cool. That's a really interesting perspective, the kind of less is more, because you said something earlier that you were like, wow, I'm creating this like cataclysmic interpersonal dynamic between people when all I thought I was doing was playing guitar. Yeah. Sometimes the things that we think are inconsequential actually have like great consequence by uh, sheer serendipity. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why, I, actually, that's why I think podcasts like this are completely absurd because it's the idea that, uh, that, uh, that the musician has any idea what their music means or right. or how how it you know they might have some intention somewhere in their mind but i mean that's just pure you know conceit that that they think that they might imagine that that should matter to anyone else um and uh you know <laughs> i'm sure you've had the experience like like um you know every musician i've ever talked to where it's like you know you finish the show and to each other we're all like wow that we played really badly tonight you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then like maybe the band that you're touring with is like man that was the best show you guys have done yet on this tour or the audience hey. you know you're at the merch table and people are just like really really loved it and i was like really you know <laughs> yeah you're um, really that one that, that yeah one <laughs> Or the other way around, and and yeah, that you can't. Uh, <laughs> there's no universal. Uh, I mean, the other thing, you know, we we did a band once in um, 2010. I think um, we did a a European tour of kind of world music festivals um, and venues with a gigantic band of about 20 people. Um, wow. about half of whom were from the Congo, um, like Kanono Number no. 1 and, and a group called Kasai All-Stars, and then Juana Molina um, Ooh, she's so was, was in it. Yeah, it's just totally amazing. Um, you know, this gigantic super band. <laughs> and uh, I mean, even the, even the people in the group who spoke the same language or came from the same country. And actually even people who came from the same country didn't necessarily speak the same language even. Right. Um, in terms of the, the Congolese musicians didn't all speak the same language. Um, um, they mostly struggled um, through French uh, talking to each other. Oh boy. Um, and, uh, but I mean, man, you'd get off stage from those shows and it'd be like <laughs> three people over here were, you know, throwing a fit about how terrible the show was. And then four people over there were high-fiving about how wonderful <laughs> it, I mean, every single show was just, there was no agreement, no consensus whatsoever on, on what just happened. You know? That is <laughs> Hysterically funny. I'm trying to imagine this. I'm like, every night must have just been like a terrifying and hilarious malang. <laughs> like, That's what it was. The most <laughs> terrifying and hilarious moment that I can remember. We were playing Fuji Rock Festival in Japan. Gigantic outdoor thing. So many people watching. 
gigantic stage, gigantic PA system. But when you have 20 people on stage and they each have their own monitor mix oh, and everything no. like that, even a giant stage gets crowded really fast. <laughs> and <laughs> I was up on a drum riser and at some point, I think I tried to stand up and maybe like start doing some dance move or something like that, but <laughs> my foot got caught in the uh, in one of the monitors. They was so oh, scrunched, no. um, and then I fell over. I fell back, and like the other guys, the uh, the other drummers were like laughing so hard at me, pointing at me and stuff. And it, it was really funny, but it was also like really embarrassing, you know, more fun. Uh, my reaction to myself falling over is to laugh hysterically and I like it's not that it doesn't hurt when you fall down but like to me, <laughs> yeah like hysterically funny that I've like failed at being upright yeah yeah the panic reaction wait so does that mean every time you laugh really hard um at something I say it's actually that it's painful and you <laughs> and <laughs> it's considered it's, it's a calamitous panic <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, I right never laugh. Um, no, my I I apparently laugh in reaction to a lot of things. Um, like I'm like, oh man, I would have cracked up seeing you doing that, and I probably would have cracked up had I done that. Exactly. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, <laughs> that sounds. I'm like that sounds things like, to do. Right, like that sounds mortifying, but also like one of those moments where you're like, you know what? If I can like fall off a drum riser. <laughs> Yeah. in the middle of everything in in this fuji rock festival like probably i can do anything <laughs> i want like that probably just gives you like invincibility powers at that point yeah the cosmic joke ed rodriguez in deer hoof he's like that too he just kind of his reaction to almost everything is to chuckle you know at least that's his <laughs> first reaction then it gets a little more complicated after that but the first reaction is always to laugh oh yeah i don't know if it's because it's like as a defense mechanism or because he's uncomfortable or embarrassed or if it because it really is funny or you know i'm like <laughs> e all of the above <laughs> yeah yeah, it's like sounds like Ed and I would get along you ever seen the um the speakerphone scene in scarface Al Pacino, the speakerphone scene? You know, I've seen like selected scenes from that movie, but I've never actually watched that whole movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit tedious, but for me, to my taste anyhow. But if you do want to watch five seconds of the movie, um, you know, <clears throat> Greg Sonia's recommendation of which five seconds to watch. <laughs> speakerphone scene, Scarface speakerphone scene. <laughs> I just imagined a supercut of like favorite five <laughs> seconds from each film, just like on YouTube. Like this is <laughs> yeah, my favorite five seconds of each movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a great idea. Oh my god! I'm like, I actually want to see that now. I'm like, what would that be like? It's like when you make <laughs> when you make a mix for someone that like you really love, and you're just like, I want you to like experience things the way I do. Which of course they're not going to, but like you put all the right. stuff that you'd want them to experience anyway. Yeah, and where you shorten every song to five seconds. Just, oh like, just that one chord you really like, you know? You like that one drum fill. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh my God. That, that's brilliant and terrifying. I, I can imagine like, a very small handful of people that would really appreciate if you gave that to them. <laughs> I mean, that's a, you know, when, when like kind of when we're on tour, which who knows if that's ever happening again, but, but when I'm on tour and you got a lot of, 
you know, spare time sitting in the car. And, and uh, sometimes that's what I do on my playlist. You know, I just have, I don't have uh, streaming, but I have, uh, you know, an MP3 collection and, mm -hmm. and I just mm -hmm. shuffle. But a lot of times I'll, <laughs> you know, the more I shuffle the same music over and over again, um, the more I'm like, you know, this intro doesn't really need to be here. And I'll go in and chop off, you know, I'll say it's reset the start time to, you know, somewhere. And then it's like, ah, oh, this fade out goes on too long or whatever. Let me chop the end. So that when it shuffles, it, it's closer and closer to basically, oh you know, a super cut of five second snippets of <laughs> all my favorite music, you know. <laughs> Well, like you were saying, it's like when you make a piece of music or when you, I don't know, one of my yeah. guests was like talking about how it's like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. It just sort of comes through me and it has like right. a meaning for me, but you yeah. don't know what it's going to mean to someone else. It, exactly. There's someone out there that's just like, this is my favorite five seconds of Deerhoof. <laughs> and I think that the listener has a lot of power. And I think it's not just that it might accidentally... Um, you know, be interpreted by a listener in a way that you didn't intend. But I think that the listener can even deliberately, um, you know, kind of um, twist or, or reshape, um, even if they do know the intention of the artist, they can still go against it. Um, that there's a, such a thing as a irreverence, you know, and there's such a thing as criticism or critique, you know, or or like, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have to, we don't have to accept without question everything that people of the past, you know, um, decided was uh, right from their point of view. The founding fathers. I mean, if we're talking about you know, revolution or collapse of <laughs> of mm -hmm. our empire. I mean, then that's the first thing that comes up. It's like, you know, people always say, oh, the U.S. is a really young country, you know, um, and that's why it's going through all of this, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not a young country. It's one of the oldest constitutions um, on earth right now. Right. You know, other countries have updated their constitution or had revolutions or created new constitutions in the in the time since 1776 or whatever. And um, ours is, you know, I think a strong case can be made that <laughs> the time is very much ripe for, you know, you know, maybe, maybe the founding fathers, you know, whatever. They had some interesting ideas. They made an attempt to make some kind of you know, limited gesture towards democracy. Right. They also didn't believe that Africans were human beings, you know, um, and they also thought that everything was tied to land ownership and property and, right. and uh, that that's what makes you a person, you know. Um, and they didn't believe that women should vote. Um, you know, I mean, the, their idea of democracy was, you know, very much not up to date and very much not fair and it, and uh, and even at the best of times it can feel here and obviously we've got election day coming in a few days it's like it can feel here like <laughs> even at our best what we're basically um, 
<laughs> permitted to do is press a button once every two to four years, you know, yeah. between two choices, you know, um, neither of which we like. And, and uh, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, to, to, to even put that in the same sentence as democracy, um, you know, it's a bit of a head scratcher, you know, it's like almost no participation. It's funny to actually go back to the, you know, the sort of ancient Greek model, because you think that like, um, <laughs> I mean, at least it seems, I, I'm not an expert, but sometimes it seems like word comes down that in that case, it was like, no, one person, one vote, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, sure, that I'm, I'm describing the U.S.'s version of democracy at the best of times, but this is also isn't the best of times. It's right? like even that much <laughs> democracy is too much for the GOP, you know. They're like, no, let's remove a whole bunch of polling stations. Oh, let's, my God. Let's, you I'm know, say like that... The fake ballot boxes that they the put up. The fake ballot boxes, you know. Oh, suddenly our voter registration website went down, you know. Uh -huh. No, we're not going to fix it. And no, you don't, we aren't giving a second chance to everybody who missed the, you know, all this. And no, and now we're going to slow down the post office. I mean, obvious, you know, and, you know, voter ID, I mean, racially based uh, voter suppression of every kind. And um, there was that crazy thing in, in um, Texas where they shut down every, there was that one county yeah. It's like 150 miles wide or something where they decided to have one polling station. Yes, yes. <laughs> I remember reading about that and I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, it's just pure cruelty. It's just it's just trying to get people not to vote. Don't don't let poor people vote. Don't let black people vote. Don't let young people vote. Right. That's it. You know, that's the GOP strategy. It's like it's even where even the founding fathers were too democratic for their taste. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think and like we were saying about the tempo, we don't know how soon it's coming, but and maybe it doesn't come all at once. But um, <laughs> certain things about 2020 have really obviously thrown everybody for a loop like things that we knew were coming someday suddenly came here <laughs> you know at a at a pace that is far beyond what many people expected and right. uh, or were prepared for right and you know you always hear your whole life oh someday a pandemic is coming yeah i know chicken little you you're you're <laughs> some dooms you know doomsayer or whatever right and then what do you know <laughs> well that's um, yeah, my mom this year started car uh she started calling me the oracle of delphi which uh <laughs> was really funny i was just like well if we were going to be accurate you should probably just say i'm more like cassandra um because, oh yeah exactly bad uh, news only exactly <laughs> bad news that, like no one's listening to and then it's like oh my god how could anyone have foreseen this and i'm like it was me <laughs> 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 I mean, but it's also like, it's also like a lot of those Cassandras in, in the 20th century, I feel like a lot of the Cassandras in our culture had the advantage of recording or book publishing yep. and a lot of their wisdom, while it was dismissed at the time it came out, or it was, I mean, as a musician, I often think of uh, <laughs> music, particularly music of oppressed 
populations in the U.S. and obviously black music being the most world famous, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're talking R and B or blues or you know soul or disco or funk or whatever it is, jazz, um, hip hop. Uh, the uh, <laughs> again, it goes back to this interpretation thing. It's like, well, the music industry interpreted it as feel good music that. You know, that wedding bands play at weddings now. You know, you do covers of uh, We Are Family and stuff like that. Um, let's think, let's, but but the, the fact is, <laughs> a lot of the wisdom and the foresight and the ability to see the future um, <laughs> and to, to see difficulty that is contained in that music, you know, is also ripe for reevaluation and that maybe it wasn't just light pops you know light entertainment and maybe it had um (laughs) deep and heavy things to say and in some cases um dealt with collapse and dealt with apocalypse and dealt with revolution um and uh I don't know. This just been on my mind recently because we just put out this thing called Love Lore that was like a medley yeah. of a whole bunch of music from the late 20th century um, that, you know, we tried to like put things together in such a way that that like <laughs> maybe the meaning of the song is cast in a different, you know, light or something than just if you hear that same song over and over again. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that, um, I'm sort of heartened by the fact that, you know, the, the Angela Davises and Bell Hooks, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, of this world are actually becoming more popular in yeah. 2020 and, uh, <laughs> still alive. And have something, some wisdom to offer. And and suddenly, as people are panicking, you know, what do we do? What do we do? What's police abolition? What's prison abolition? There's someone you can turn to has who's had already devoted their thought and their life, you know, for decades to studying the data and mm-hmm. and uh, and the theory, um, and and can be a source of something other than total confusion and panic um, or just sort of reactionary, you know, political speechifying or whatever. Yeah. Um, like thinking about rea- like the difference between action and reaction. Yeah. Um, that it's like, I always say this to my clients, even though it's hard to internalize that it's like, what your tarot clients? <laughs> what clients? Oh, um, I'm also a therapist. That's oh, like, okay. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <just> like, <laughs> <laughs> FYI, um, <laughs> like, it's a strange life I'm living right now. Um, sure, but, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we talked a lot about... What? Multifaceted. Ah, yeah, hence the thesis of the podcast, really. That's why I was wondering, uh, I was like, all kind of backwards into this, because I was like... I'm wondering when the podcast is going to start. What's your first question? Oh, oh, we're... <laughs> This this podcast is really in a way like on beautifully off the rails because like there's no <laughs> rules in quarantine times. I don't have yeah, exactly. anymore. I'm like, it's my podcast now. 
<laughs> right on. Wait, so okay, okay, okay. I interrupted. Tell your tell your story, your client. Um, that's so funny. Um, no, with my clients, we talk about how we make in, uh, we make decisions based on the information and feelings that we had at the time. And then over time, we gain more information and we might gain wisdom about our feelings and we might feel differently and we can make different choices. Um, And so to have compassion for where we were, but be like, that doesn't preclude Mm. us from going somewhere else. Um, And that reminded me of what you said about like Mm. our country in general, where it's like we were going like the founding fathers had a lot of ideas that I frankly think are wrong, but that was the information that they had at the time. That was like their cultural information, which I think is terrible, Mm. but like that's what they had to go off of. Um, and so it's like they were acting on what they had mm-hmm. and it's like we have so much more now look at how many look at how many options we have we could make so many different choices now <laughs> like, yeah I think that I think that that uh, principle can also be abused and even in the founding father's day there were people who were opposed to chattel slavery and True. Uh, <laughs> yeah and it's not like they were forced to to choose that or to invest in that or to support that or to uh, engage in that um, from the very oh, yeah. beginning I don't, of slavery. I don't, give them a, I don't give them a free pass. They were yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not like, I'm not like, mm. oh my God, they were great. It's more like, no, you were kind of weak-minded and went with like the dominant cultural ideas that yeah. you had at the time. Like, okay. <laughs> I wonder what you think. I mean, that being the case, do you have an opinion, like we mentioned Harvey Weinstein earlier, and he's you know one of one of modern times um, most uh, guess you know and- darkest examples of you know a person who was rightfully canceled and uh, and was you know therefore lost his job and lost his standing and his reputation and his ability to to uh, interfere with the editing of the sound mix of any more movies. And, uh, 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 but like, if you had Harvey Weinstein as a client at some point, you know, what is the role of, uh, like the person, the human being still exists. They're still there. What's the, what are the possibilities of um, of taking the approach you just described? It's like, well, you made some poor choices based on, you know, your feelings, needs, knowledge, understanding, um, and limitations at the time. You have different ones now. Not that he's done any of this. He right. pled not guilty to everything. Right. But but uh, you know, if he were to try to be accountable and and to try to make some effort towards the healing of the victim, then, um, you know, to what extent, I don't know, that's just something I've been thinking about recently. Then it comes up when, you're, when one is thinking about prison abolition. Well, it's like, what about some of the, you know, are, are, are some of these people unforgivable? Is Donald Trump unforgivable, you know? And is that is that a a taboo question to even ask? You know, well, and then there... it's like it's it's not, for instance, someone like Trump or Weinstein. It's not mm-hmm. on. In a way, it's outside of their sphere for someone else to forgive them. Like that has to be someone else's. Very friend. true. Yeah. And so it's like, 
if I were working with someone like that, it would be looking for the capacity for them to empathize and forgive themselves and make different choices and whether they wanted to do that because mm-hmm. trying to face the horror of harming that many people right. would be terrifying I would imagine um right. like I I'm not a megalomaniacal monster so I don't go about harming people <laughs> at that rate so I'm like, I don't know what that would be like I feel terrible when I accidentally say something by accident that like hurts my friend's feelings I'm like, right, I'm like exactly I don't yeah. know what that would feel like that would probably be like ego destroying and so yeah. Right. You know, I think in a way that's why like people like this don't, you know, plead guilty or things like that. Because can you imagine? Right. It's just to face it. For that. Like yeah. that would be terrifying. And so in a way, I think the forgiveness is then like, I, I frankly, I work more with the people who harm has been right. done to them than who have done harm. Right. And exactly. So it's like working with people about like how to let that harm go or how that harm transformed you because it's mm-hmm. something that was inflicted upon you. It's not something you chose. And that's exactly. not a choice you made. So it's yeah. like, well, what do you do now that it's here? Um, and yeah. so that's definitely, that's something I work with. But it would be really, it would be interesting because occasionally clients will come to me that they're, they feel guilty that they've done something. Um, yeah. And we work with like how to make that better with them, but also with the acknowledgement that like you can't control what the quote like victim of your actions <laughs> is right. going to think or do or whether they forgive you or not. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's that's up to them. Like that's that's their thing. But at the same yeah. time, there's something in you that makes you make those choices. And unless you face what the repercussions are and whether you care about those repercussions, that's the thing. Yeah. Is like some people simply do not care about the repercussions of their actions. <laughs> Nothing you can say makes them care. Like they simply yeah. don't. Um, and at that point, it's like you know. I do think that in some ways, like aside from the prison system, I think that ostracizing people, like that seems like a logical consequence to me when people, yeah, exactly. oh my God, why have I been deplatformed? I'm like, well, that's a consequence of saying awful things. That's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, you know, if someone's running around a party insulting people, you're going to ask them to leave the party. You're not going to be like, well, right. that's just the insulting guy. Like, gotta, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know? know, and so I do think that there is like harm reduction through ostracizing and that that can teach people like, mm-hmm. hey, that's not the way. Um, yeah. But, to shun. Yes. yes. To shun people from a, from participation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that, that, you know, that I think is in some ways more painful. Um, and that's right. why like as a consequence can sometimes be almost more effective <laughs> uh, because like, you don't, you don't get to hang out with anyone anymore. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Do you think that, that like you said, you can't make somebody feel empathy um, or you certainly can't force them to. You can yeah. ask over and over. You can beat them over the head. You can you can comment on their Facebook post, to, you know, right. with ever increasing <laughs> aggression, you know, and somehow they're still not feeling more empathy. But um, but do you think that? Do you ever think that the arts may actually play a role in the opening up of? of the possibility of empathy inside of a person, you know, reading a novel about characters and starting to care about those characters or, you know, listening to, to music and, and having it, um, you know, the human voice, uh, you know, starting to identify with that voice, you know, as you sing along or, or as you are, your emotions are stirred by it. 
Oh, completely. Whether that applies yeah. to your actions, like I have no <laughs> idea. But like I, think that, <laughs> I, I do think that definitely people have expressed to me, at least in many spheres of conversation, mm. like extremely personal, emotional experiences with the arts. Yeah. Like no matter no matter who they are, no matter what they do, like whether it's music or whether it's a, the there's like you said like in a novel that they really identify with someone whether right. even like there are some people that have expressed to me that they really enjoy reading nonfiction and they get like so into like the experience of others that they're reading about yeah, um like me. <laughs> you're like hello yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, i do I think, think so that, yeah i think that and i think that's the reason we got to keep keep going you keep you keep making your synthesizer music and your <laughs> ableton and stuff I'm going to keep oh. writing some songs. I'm going to keep playing the drums. Even if we okay. can't tour right now, we're just going to keep it up. You know? Well, yeah, because then it fosters empathy with yourself. And then it fosters, which Ooh. is a weird thing to say, but it's like, yes, yeah, like you start having more empathy for your own experience because we're all going through a really uh, very strange experience right now. It's a strange experience. And it's also, you know, <laughs> I was talking um, a couple months ago to uh, a friend of mine called Wadada Leo Smith, with whom we released a live album uh, this summer. And he was saying like, oh, man, <laughs> quarantine's been so great for me. I get up in the morning, I make myself a little food and I go to work. I, I'm writing music. Um, and I have no interruptions. And <laughs> when I get hungry, I make some more food and then I go to bed and then I get up early again the next morning. And there's, it's not just that it's strange right now, but there's also this possibility mm. or this, you know, opportunity to go really deep, you know, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant to, to, to familiarize yourself with yourself with some part of yourself that normally you kind of skirt over this, you know, over the surface. Um, mm -hmm. And that, uh, um, I don't know, there's just all this time where you're having to face yourself. Or if it's like two people living together, that's the situation I'm in uh, with Sarah. It's like, yeah. um, you know, the relationship becomes a lot deeper, you know, because it's yeah. like we pretty much only have each other to interact with yes. you know, in person. Yes. And uh, um, so it's like, it's also been strangely, I don't know, for me, it's been like, it's had a lot of, it's been, it's been like, it felt kind of tragic. All our tours got canceled, obviously. And, uh, it, you know, prospects for future tours seem really iffy, you know, um, it's not just a question of whether some governor says, okay, open that bar back up it's it's a right. question of well wait a second you know <laughs> yeah, like are you putting yourselves or others in danger by doing that? yeah exactly and and uh and if if everybody's going to be standing six feet apart like and not allowed to dance or something you know first of all is it just going to be a huge money loser unless we charge a hundred dollars to come see Vera? you know Right. Um, if, if you can only get that many people <laughs> into <Yeah>. the <laughs> size club. And then there's a the question of any of these clubs going to be in business. I mean, we're just watching them drop, you know, one by one. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the circuit that we would normally have played over all these years, it's like many of those venues just gone. That's it. Um, and there's, you know, more to come, undoubtedly. 
and um, <laughs> you know the 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 government has not seen fit to to um, prevent that. You know they don't see that as one of the more the bigger priorities. You know the bigger priority is you know make sure that the CEO of some airline you know gets a bonus this year. You know can buy a new yacht or something, um, and uh, so. So as touring, you know, seems iffy right now isn't a thing and it seems right. iffy about when and if it may ever return. Yeah, you kind of turn towards a little bit inward and, and recording and writing. Um, and, uh, and in a weird way, it's been, there's been a certain rewarding quality to like focusing in that direction, even though it feels really, um, I really, really miss everything about touring, you know, yeah. seeing my bandmates and, and, you know, being on stage, you know, the, the, the high that comes with that. And also maybe more than anything, just the randomness of it, the random inter interactions with total strangers is kind of, I think the thing I miss the most weirdly, it's not the reason that we ever said, Hey, we should go on tour or, Hey, I want to be a musician so I can have random interactions with strangers. <laughs> but that just came to be the way that I do have interactions with strangers. And um, you never know what's going to come up in conversation. You never know what somebody's going to hand you or, or right. talk about or react to, you know, something that happened during the show, you know, um, and those are the things that's like the nourishment, you know, um, that feels like it's sort of missing right now. Um, well, that sounds but, like kind of like redefining your relationship with music and also with connection to others. Like those two things yeah. seem very much in flux right now. <laughs> yep. Well, it's good we could have this podcast to uh, to practice interacting on on this level. <laughs> I said that on a on a post recently that I was really excited that people were listening, but also like it felt very selfish in a way that I'm like I get to like once a week at least talk right. to someone else, like have a really just focused, straight up just human interaction. Just be yeah. like, here's this human being that you get to talk to. Yeah, How totally. exciting. That's like, and that's literally all that this time is dedicated to where it's like, oh, what's this person's experience? And that to me is like, I'm like, what a, what a joyful rarity right now. Cause you're like, you're saying like, you know, even whether you're touring or whether you're playing local shows, like there's like that sharing aspect of music. And I say that as like a very shy studio rat, right. um, but it's like, there's an even the magic of attending other shows you never know really what's going to happen at a show right exactly and that's one thing that makes them so magical <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i mean particularly when you're when you're on our level and the shows aren't huge i mean when they get really huge they become a little bit more predictable um and they're they're a little bit they feel a little bit, you know, when you're in the 200th row, you know, yeah. of an arena yeah. or a stadium night after night, it, the show is, can be extremely similar, but when you're, when it's like, yeah, when you're playing like smaller venues, it is utterly different from night to night. Um, the venue itself is totally different, um, you know, in the next town or whatever. Um, the size, the shape, you know, the layout, yeah. the PA system, the shape of the stage. 
Um, and you, if you're really that close to the audience, it's not just some amorphous blob. It's like, um, yeah, it's you see individuals and yeah. the personality and the scene in every city is different. And yeah, you certainly miss that. But, but uh, yeah, I really relate to what you're saying about the weekly thing. When the the album we put out in, um, well, I don't know, it was like maybe May. <laughs> <laughs> or like April or something. Time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like 10 years ago. Um, we we did an album called Future Teenage Cave Artists and leading up to that release, the band and the label, our label Joyful Noise, mm -hmm. um, we did Skype calls um, every week, you know, to get ready to prepare like, oh, you know, we planned out doing an online listening party and we we're working about like working out like which songs should have a video or you know um uh, you know how to word the bio or you know all this kind yeah, of stuff. yeah yeah all the pr stuff and but then <laughs> once the record came out um we were like let's keep having the meetings <laughs> and you know to this day it's like we're still doing the meetings every single week and and it's just like so great to be able to touch base with each other in the band and, and with the label and just kind of brainstorm you know we don't have an album coming up but we're starting to you know we're working on a new one now it's not to the point where the label needs to be you know fine-tuning the press campaign or anything right. like that but still they it's fun to have them in on the ground floor and and to to be brainstorming with them in other words the exact opposite of that weinstein experience i was describing yeah. where everybody's an adversary Everyone's this is like right. yeah the label's allowed to chip in with with um brainstorms you know about an album that hasn't even been recorded yet you know and it's really fun to to have developed a trusting relationship working relationship with certain people uh where yeah where you actually want them it's like fun for everybody to be like in on the process right from the beginning it's cool yeah and that's like i love that you said that it's like you trust people it's like when you're writing yeah. with your bandmates it's like you trust each other with your ideas yeah. like exactly. you're gonna kind of like be like okay i can toss something out <laughs> know that it's safe um uh, right. and that's cool that i'm just like oh it's like you expanded <laughs> your party well done <laughs> <laughs> i would say that uh that the that the process of Deerhoof's existence has been to trust more and more like so that when each of us writes a, a song or has an idea or plays something and then sends it to everyone else i think we're less and less scared you know that we might have exposed too much or done something too silly or too far out or whatever um, um or not meeting expectations like i think um that's been such a, um, I feel really, really grateful. Um, and it's partly just the nature of my bandmates, mm -hmm. um, the people that they are, but you know, that that's been the process. It hasn't been that we've narrowed down or decided on a style or on a method or, you know, or a hierarchy or anything. It's just, um, <laughs> for people who have gotten closer over the years and, you know, aren't afraid to 
basically to fall down, you know, yep. Um, yep. <laughs> trip over something, fall down to to make a mistake, to suggest a silly idea. They aren't offended when somebody else says, no, I don't like that idea. You know, we just have the, the, the flow is more is more fluid and, and open now than than it ever was. And I don't know how that happened, but it's, it's really cool. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so cool. That is because oh. we ask like, what advice would you give? And I'm like, right. no, like find people that you can do that with. Sounds like. To right. <laughs> I mean, in a way you don't really know because you know, it's like, we've had the band for, I don't know, 20 some years. It's like, you don't really know what person each person might turn into. You were describing earlier about the past person and what they yeah. felt, what they knew. You don't know what they're gonna know in the future and whether you are whether you will still be compatible. And it's kind of like a miracle if these updated versions of ourselves still have a way to interact with each other. Um, and it's not just out of habit, um, but but each of us is changing. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm a lot different as a person then uh, I wouldn't have wanted to do a podcast in 1994 <laughs> or whatever when I started the band. It's like I was much too shy and and um, didn't feel like I had anything to say. I was really secretive about the music I was making and, mm -hmm. and the process involved and everything. It's just like changed so much. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd say the same thing about Satomi and John and Ed. Like, um, they're very different people than when I first mm -hmm. met them. And yet, <laughs> you know, somehow we're still like making things with each other and it's cool. I like how you put it that it's like the updated versions of yourself, like <laughs> all kind of like mesh and coalesce. And I'm like, that's a great way to put it because no one stays yeah. static for 20 years. Exactly. Um, that, that would, well, if you do, that's probably not a great thing. <laughs> well, yeah, some I think some bands feel pressure to stay static or they feel pressure from labels to be like, uh, you know, like churn out another hit like you did and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And that will inevitably, you know, cause the band to, to, to feel a lot of stress, you know, and make it a lot less fun. And yeah. somehow, you know, I think I'm, I'm grateful for our fans because they've always <laughs> allowed us a lot of room to surprise them or surprise each other, you know, and to do something different than what we did. Like when you said that you started out as like singer songwriter on piano with a band and then you switched to synthesizers and, um, it's like, uh, <laughs> that, that shift or that, that transformations can be welcomed, you yeah. know, is like, um, incredible. And I think it really is huge. I mean, <laughs> maybe like <laughs> the last thing I want to say, you know, that has to do with the election again, is that, you know, one of the reasons that, um, <laughs> Like, I think I've already made it clear, you know, in this podcast that I'm not really a, an enormous fan of Joe Biden. <laughs> but, but one reason that I feel strongly about uh, voting for him rather than Trump is the fact that he at least a few times has shown a glimmer of hope that he can change his opinion on something. Yes. Um, 
he's not the most transformational figure, you know, obviously, even in politics, let alone, you know, humanity. But compared to Trump, who who seems to be very set in his opinions, and they haven't altered. Right. And, and in fact, his own faithful, his own fans are clearly people who love to be dominated and people who love to be dictated to because they're the reason they love him is that he will never cave to any pressure from anyone it's right. his his fixedness he's like a, a, a just a, a statue you know he'll never change um <laughs> he'll never bend he'll never have empathy he'll never listen you know he'll never be convinced by by a more logical argument Nope. Um, he's just going to be uh, what he is. And, and some people uh, who want domination, who are comfor comfortable or, or who love being dominated, I guess, are fans of that and, uh, and get excited when they see someone like that. But, you know, for the rest of us, for most of us, uh, you know, our only hope, I mean, we, we were talking about survival issues at this mm -hmm. point. Um, our only hope is for... <laughs> If it must be a politician whose platform you disagree with, which is Joe Biden in my case, um, then you hope for someone who can change and show signs that they're that they can update themselves, and that maybe Joe Biden wouldn't author the crime bill in 2021 that he authored in 1994, right. um, and that maybe he doesn't still hold the same. He's not like some you know, budget deficit Republican, basically, you know, who's always worried about, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, he used to talk about cutting Social Security because it because it wouldn't balance the budget and stuff like right. that. And I think even just last night in the debate, I, I feel like he'd come around a little bit um, <laughs> like he mentioned the founding fathers and he, he said that it's OK to to do deficit spending if the you know, when when the misery in the population requires some help, you know, and obviously that's exactly where we're at. And you've got one candidate who's saying, no, we will not. I mean, of course, <laughs> that's untrue. The GOP spends, creates greater deficits <laughs> than the Democrats over and over in every single administration. But, um, but at least the talk is, you know, budget um, all the time with the GOP right. and we could, we're inflexible. Um, and yeah, you liked it. I, in other words, it's Joe Biden's weakness, um, and his, his kind of pandering quality that I consider to be the only hope right yeah. now is that, that, that he may actually cave in to public pressure, which I hope starts the day after election day <laughs> and is just unrelenting and really strong. You know, we obviously need Green New Deal. We need yes. uh, Medicare for yes. all, you know. Yeah. And that's it's almost like a, a metaphorical like he kind of reminds me of like, you know, those little wedges that you put on the floor to like keep the door open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that. Yeah, like I love that. I couldn't think of the word doorstop. Cool, cool yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah. What's the ancient Greek word for it? Right. <laughs> um, ADHD is a magical condition in which, like, you can do extremely complicated things well and then simple things very poorly. Um, but uh, he reminds me of that, where it's like 
he's yeah. that, he's that little wedge that <laughs> the door open where it's just like is this the magical portal no right. is this the wedge where we can just like sneak on in there yeah yes. and i think that you spoke to something that i think in american culture very much confuses me in which i hope to change mm. ironically saying change yeah. that, but it's like that people perceive change as weakness, whereas I right. perceive change as strength. Like yeah. I perceive transformation. Is, yes. Is. Yes. Like I. Perceive and that's a Tarot stuff too. I mean, it's like not being fixed. Not like I am this person. It's like no, you're changing into this person today, or in reference to this question, you know, um, and uh, and yeah, I, I I totally agree. Not to interrupt you, I just I agree that transformation is is like. A big part of um, you know why I'm a musician or why I have Deerhoof, you know, why Deerhoof is the way it is. It's like it's always the looking to transform or to update or to resurrect yourself, you know, from the ashes, from the rubble, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, because <laughs> like, <laughs> everything is cyclical. It's like I, I firmly. Mm -hmm. That I'm like, oh, I'm talking about change and saying I firmly believe something. Um, it's more like I, <laughs> I very clearly often see the light and darkness and don't think that they're mutually exclusive. It's like, yeah, yeah, right. Both of those forces are in there. Like, yeah. you're gonna cycle amongst them. Like, go mm -hmm. for it. <laughs> yeah, own it. Like Jung says, you know, owning your own shadow. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. This is why we play with lots of distortion. <laughs> I probably just distorted shriek laughing into my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh. You think we've given enough, given them uh, enough, Pam? I feel like I We're feel an like hour and twenty six minutes. Oh yeah. Well, don't worry. I'll edit out a lot of my ADHD tangents. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate. it. <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for the chat. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode. Oh, <laughs>